Good morning. Uh, if you can open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6, and if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, the ushers would be happy to bring you one, so just raise your hand and then they'll bring a blue Bible to you. Uh, last week, if you were here, was a powerful Sunday morning service, wasn't it? And if you weren't here, let me, remind, let me tell you what happened. We had a couple baptisms, and we had three testimonies. And I was, you know, I, I was just, I felt like I was being taken for a ride by God. It was really incredible. Dan shared uh, before he got baptized that he was not living the way, a kind of life that God wants us to live. And God came and powerfully saved him. And then Betsy Beach shared how she had all the, has all these, these uh, you know, physical ailments and, and, her, and she nearly died many times. And how God saved her over and over again and miraculously healed her. And then my own beautiful wife, Joy, shared about some of the, um, you know, wounds and emotional wounds she has and how God came in an amazing way, healed her. And it was just an incredible Sunday morning of testimonies, and, and I just heard lots of buzz afterward, people talking about it, and there's a, a YouTube video out there of Betsy sharing her thing, and, and it's, it's, it's just awesome to see what God's doing. I just felt like God was saying, look guys, look what I'm doing, look what I'm doing, look what I'm doing, over and over again. And I, I loved it. I was just, weren't you into it? I just, it was just a powerful service. And, but I need to, I want to, there's something that was really bothering me last Sunday as well. At the same time while I was loving it, my mind kept going to people in this room, hearing these testimonies of God's amazing power, people in this room who are suffering now. People in this room who are, there's just stuff in their life right now that just, oh, it's just heavy. And I was thinking, what, what are they experiencing? How, you know, on one end, testimonies can be very, very, very encouraging, right? It can remind us to have faith in God and to, to go to him. But on the other side, it can kind of harden our heart. It can make us a little bit resentful, like, God, where are you in my pain? Where's my testimony? Where's my healing? How come I'm struggling with this, but they see this amazing stuff happen? I was, my heart was going towards people in the room today who were uh, struggling with this. And so this series, Leverage, we're talking about the various things in our lives and how we can leverage them, how we can use them for eternal gain. That's our focus. And uh, I, you know, Joy shared about her pain and, and how God used that and leveraged that. And Joy's my wife, and she, for like seven years, dealt with some really heavy emotional stuff, uh, deep wounds, and it was really hard, hard on our marriage. You know, we were young, we've only been married for 10 years, and seven of those years were just difficult. And, and she did say, you know, my, she, she in some ways honored me by saying, he, Peter stuck with me through it. And many of you came up to me afterward and said, thank you for sticking by Joy during that time. And it was, it was very encouraging for me. But part of me wanted to say, no! I'm not anything special. There's nothing special like this. Oh, you're such a great husband. No. During that suffering time, I was just as much suffering and doubting and wanting to get out. I, I just, it, it felt like this huge weight was on my chest and I was suffocating. That there was pressure coming at me from all directions. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I was angry. I was angry at joy. I was angry at God. I was angry at my friends, my family. I was angry at Chapel Hill at times. <laughs> yes, I stuck by her, and I'm so thankful I did, but, but you got to know that wasn't, 
through perfection. I, I can take anything. It was like a, it was a struggle to even get up every day. I know that feeling of suffering where it feels like everything is going to go wrong. And, and you know what? I even had, a, I had this sense the whole time, and maybe you can relate to this, but I had this sense that, that it was just a matter of time before the next bad news hit. It was just a matter of time. It was that next phone call. It was that next email, that next day when I wake up. I had this thing haunting me like, your life is here, and it's going down, and it's going down, and it's going down, down, down. And that is the only trend. And that's it. And to be, if I was honest with you back then, I would be like, ah, it's just going to get worse. I didn't see any, I just, and I just need to like suffer through it, and that's what's going to, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So when I heard these testimonies last week, I was wondering, are there people in our church who are also in this position? Where they're wondering, where is my testimony? Where is my healing? I have this weight on my shoulder and I'm suffocating. Pressure from all around. This morning, I don't want to answer the question, why that's happening to you. That's not my goal. If you're looking for why, God, why, that's not the purpose of this. We're on leverage. So we're talking about what? What do we do with this? What do we do with this? So, recently I heard this story Judges in Judges 6 about Gideon. And it hit me just a few months ago. And it, wasn't, it was something I didn't, didn't expect. But it resonated with me in all sorts of levels. And I want to share with you that story and then talk about it as we go. So, Judges, um, Judges 6, we meet this guy named Gideon. And a little background here. The Israelites, God's people, have come through Egypt, come through the desert, and now they're in the promised land. So now they've arrived. But the Israelites are continuing on this kind of pattern. It goes like this. The Israelites get to a place and settle down, and then they start to kind of compromise. And they sin. And they start to worship other gods, like the Canaanite god Baal. They worship these other gods. God sees this, says, if you forgot about me, and lets the Israelites go into exile. Let's their enemies overtake them. The Israelites are now in exile, and they cry out to God, save us! Save us! Finally, they cry out to God, and then God saves them. But eventually, they sin again. God sees they sin, hands them over their enemies. Israelites cry out to God. God saves them. It's this pattern that continues over and over again. And so right now, we're here. The Israelites are under the oppression of the Midianites. So let's look at chapter 6, verse 2. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravish it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites 
that they cried out to the Lord for help. So the Israelites cry out to God for help. And so God, again, as always, hears the cry of the oppressed. How? Verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out because you, because before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Basically, God says this. God reminds them of his faithfulness to them, his power, his involvement, how they turn from him. God reminds them that he has a plan going, a mission for them. He wants them to be his people, his representatives on earth. He wants to use them to show the world what he is like, that he is good, that he is holy, that he is powerful, that he is almighty, that he is strong, that he will be their provider, that he has the power to save, that he wants to be their shelter, their savior, their focus, and their treasure. But they keep turning away. God is crying out to them, saying this to them. So let's go to Judges chapter 6, 11, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abrazite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So get, get this. Gideon is in the, the wine press threshing wheat. It's a wine press, but he's threshing wheat. Why? Because he's, he's trying to, you know, do it in secret so, they don't, so the Midianites don't come and steal all of his goods. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord. You know, Gideon, in my mind, is kind of this pathetic guy a little bit, right? So I'm going to do that, his voice that way. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So he's like, I heard all these stories from my dad about how, God, you saved my, you know, all, all our ancestors, and now we're in oppression. Where are you? Where are you, God? I hear all these testimonies of God doing these incredible things. Where are you? You, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Uh, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. He's like, I'm pathetic. I'm a loser. I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. So Gideon's like, where have you been? All these things are happening. And where have you been? I've heard these stories about you. Where have you been? And God's like, I will be with you. We're, we're, you I'm going to use you to save the people from the Midianites. And he's like, well, me? Who am I? I'm pathetic. I'm a loser. I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. So then after this, Gideon asked God for signs. He's like, okay, prove it to me. Show me something incredible. Burn up this altar so God does and does this incredible work. And then God turns to Gideon and says, all right, Gideon, I got a job for you. You need to go to your father Joash's house because he's got these altars to Baal. He's got these altars, the Asherah poles, he's got all this stuff, and I want you to go and I want you to tear it all down. So, So so Gideon goes. But here's the thing. What God's doing is this. He's cleaning the camp. 
Before God deals with the problem, deals with the oppression, he has to deal with what's going on inside. What is causing this? What's going on? And what's causing this is his worship of Baal. So God first cleans house. He sends them out. I I saw this tweet by Greg Boyd that hit me this week. It said this, It's my experience that it does no good to ask God to take away soul pain unless I'm willing to honestly explore how I myself am causing it. It's no good to just ask God, get me out of this, when you're not willing to look inside and go, how am I causing this? I felt the same thing when when Joy was going through her stuff. God, save me from this. And he's like, you got some stuff to work on. You got some stuff to work through. And there were things I had to work through. There was stuff. He had a clean house before he dealt with the problem. Judges 6, 27. Let's go there now. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. He, he killed the, took out the altar. But because he was afraid of his family, pathetic Gideon, uh, and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him. This is Gideon's dad. He says, are you going to plead Baal's case? Are you trying to save Baal? Whoever fights for Baal should be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day, they gave Gideon the name Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. So here's the thing. Israel is so ingrained in the culture that when they see Baal's altar taken down, they're, they, they're so into it, they're like, kill Gideon! They want to kill their own because they took down, he took down the God of another group, a, a false God. And Joash, who's his dad, King's dad, his hands aren't clean because it was his own altar, steps up and says, look, Baal's really a God. Let, let Baal deal with him. If he truly is a God, let him deal with him. So they name him Jerubbaal. Let Baal contend with him. Can you imagine like having that on your sticker? Like, I'm Drew Bale. Bale's contending with me, right? It's like this. It's, what if you were to like do this? Um, it's like if you burned all your family's O magazines and your family finds out and is furious and then renames you Jerub Oprah. Let Oprah deal with him, <laughs> right? He tore down this thing in their family and, and now he's got this new name. I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome he's got this name. So this pathetic man goes in, does this work, and now, now we get to the battle. Judges 7, 1. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, Gideon, and all his men camped out at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Wait. We're dealing with an army 
where there's men and camels that are impossible to count. The Midianites, it's like as far as you can see, this massive army is oppressing them. And they have 22,000 men, and God cuts their group from 22,000 men down to 10,000 men. Why? Don't they need all the help they can get? I mean, they're already a huge deficit. Now he's cut their resources in half. The reason why is this. He says, Israel would boast against me my own strength to save me. Israel will boast against me my own strength has saved me. God cuts it down because he doesn't want Israel to think that their strength saved them. Let's read on. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So God's like, I'm going to say, Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, whoever goes, or I say go, goes, whoever stays, stays. Wherever I say, stay, stay. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told Gideon, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. So here's the picture. There are some guys, when they went down to drink, they get down, they take their hand, they dip it in the water, and they lap it. Like that. The actual Hebrew word is yalak. Say yalak. It sounds like a dog, right? Yalk, 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 yalk. Right? He drinks, they drink this water. And then these other men actually get down on their knees and stick their face in the water and drink directly. God says, separate these two. Then he says this. 300 of them you locked with their hands to their mouth. And all the rest got down to their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that you locked, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So God has taken 22,000 men, enough men to fill the target center, down to 10,000 men, down to 300, which is about the amount of people we have in our building today to fight this army that some commentators say was 120,000 people. God's like, we're going to take out this army with 300 men. 300 men. Why? Why? Because Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So let's see how it happens. You ready? Judges 7. Verse, we're in the second half of verse 8. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. Verse 9. Now, during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your own hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servants, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Get the picture. This, this army as far as you could see. Now Gideon arrived 
Just as a man was telling his friend a dream, I had a dream, he said, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. So this guy has this dream that some bread, some bread comes and rolls down a hill and takes out the entire army. What a ludicrous thing, right? What a stupid thing. Nobody goes to a war with bread. What a pathetic thing, right? He has this picture about this. You know, I have dreams too, okay? But this guy apparently thought it was something. I saw a piece of bread roll down a hill and knock out the whole army. And I'm telling you this because, is this this a strategy? Nobody, Nobody defends himself with a piece of bread. Nobody does. Or maybe maybe it does work, I don't know. <laughs> Note to self, if Dale comes after you, bread, bread. He has this dream about the stupid loaf of bread. Like, what? Okay, and his friend responds. Look at verse 14. So, so Gideon's walking by these guys, and they're talking. His friend responds, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. This guy, this, the bread, is Gideon's sword. And Gideon hears this, check this out, in verse 13, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down. He's like, yes, another sign, another sign. This is, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but he, this bread encouraged him. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands, dividing the 300 men into three companies. He placed M16s and Black Hawk helicopters in their hands to take... He plays trumpets. Okay, this is getting ridiculous, right? He's got 300 men, and they're going to go after this huge army as far as you can see with this. I took choir in in school, so I didn't. A horn. A horn. This is is not conventional warfare. They're going to go play him a song. We're going to take 300 men, and we're going to go play him a song. He was so confident in God's strength. He was so confident in God's power that he's like, we're going to take him out with a horn. So he, <laughs> he placed horns and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. So he's got this, this horn and a torch with, the, with a jar on top of the torch. And, he, and Gideon says this, hey guys, watch me. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just as they had changed guards. So, so the, the Midianites, like their guard is just changing, right? They're in the transition point of changing guard. And right at that point, they blow their trumpets, they break the chars and raise, raise up the torches. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. 
And then it says that God caused confusion in the Midianites, and they started to kill each other and took out the Midianites with a horn. Awesome. Amazing. Creative. Powerful. Relying on God's strength. Unconventional weapons. Bread, horn, 300 men. Pathetic people. So what? So what? Maybe, it's, maybe we could say this. Maybe we could say this. When we have a problem, we often first go to the physical, the emotional, the medical, the self-help books, James Dobson, Oprah, not, our education, our experience, our wisdom, our ideas, our muscles, our rich family members, our connected friends, medication, therapy, counselors, rehab centers, trying harder, working more, burning the candle to both ends, and Google. We often go there first when we have a problem, right? Next slide. God wants our natural reflex to be that we turn to God first. And how can we practically do that? He wants us to leverage prayer. We often go to the things that we can do, our, our own actions. But he wants us to rely on his strength and his power like Gideon did. I had heard this, uh, um, I, you know, this the last, uh, a few months ago, I, I, Joy was out of town and I went down to, I went over to Brian and Rachel Smith's house. And we had this great dinner. And, uh, you know, Joy and I have this 19-month uh, a daughter, and she's the cutest one in the land, and I'll fight you for it. And uh, she, um, I, I, had, I had these questions. I'm like, well, how did you guys determine how you're going to parent? So, you know, when, when do you, how do you do discipline stuff? What's your strategy? What's your, you know, I was looking for some help. How do, I, how do I deal with this? And their response to me was so cool. Like, I just, it just stuck with me. And so I asked Rachel if she would share a little bit about how God has directed her and directed her and Brian to, and how they discipline their kids. So, Rachel, would you just come share? Thank you. Let's start with a story. When my oldest son, Stephen, was two and a half, we lived in Tokyo. And Stephen was a very busy little guy and a, a little bit more than a handful. Um, and Tokyo scared me in a lot of ways. <clears throat> First of all, we lived on the 14th floor, and in Tokyo they don't have locks on their windows or screens on their windows. And so my busy, curious little boy, I could just picture him opening the window and plummeting all the way down. I'd have these nightmares. And we took the subway, and the train was our, our main mode of transportation. And I could see us walking down into the subway platform where, you know, there's no guardrails, there's no guards, there's no people, and I could just see the little kid just bolting and running right down into the tracks. And I had these nightmares and nightmares about this. How was I going to keep this little boy safe? Um, so I decided, I have a um, degree from the University of Minnesota in child psychology. I thought, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. We're going to do a sticker chart. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we did it together. We used Bob the Builder. It was very, very cute. He seemed excited. Um, and the test was soon to come. We were walking together home from an event, and there's this tiny little sidewalk next to a street. And the street is about the size of an alley, but it's actually a two-way road. Um, and it's moderately busy, so I'm, I'm holding pretty tight to this little guy's hand. And he wrenches free and bolts. 
right down the road. And I'm four months pregnant, and so my American pregnant body's hauling across this, <laughs> this little Japanese road, um, trying to get him, and he's just giggling, just giggling, giggling, giggling. Um, oh, sorry, does that help? Okay. Um, but when I finally did grab him, I grabbed his collar, and I was so angry. I was furious. I was desperately searching my mind for anything that I could tell him to help him understand the danger that he had put himself in. Um, and all that came out through my clenched teeth was, you lost your sticker. <laughs> and his little lips stuck out and his jaw clenched and we both stomped the whole way home. We made it back to the apartment, and we headed straight to our rooms and closed our doors, just like teen angst. And I put my head in my hands, and I'm taking these deep breaths, and I hear this, just this little bitty knock on the door. I thought, oh, okay, we'll hug, we'll make up. I open it up, and there he is. His little jaw is still clenched, and in his hand, he has the sticker chart ripped into shreds. <laughs> and I, was, I realized I was going to need more than a degree in child psych to understand how to parent this kid. Um, so when we got back from Tokyo, I started my search. I read every book, um, and lots of them were great. Got a couple of great tips on how to get through my day. At that point, I had three, under three years old, so it was busy, it was hard. Um, but I still felt like I was surviving, and I was more like I was reacting rather than being proactive. Um, I always was playing catch-up, and I, I didn't know how do I take the gifts that God gave me, use them appropriately, and parent each one of these complex and beautiful little little individuals. I wanted my kids to be used in his kingdom, um, but it was just too much. All this information was too much. It was like an ocean, and I was just drowning. Um, and at the same time, God was working on my heart. It was just a slow and beautiful and dear wooing. Um, there were sweet whispers of his love and gentle tappings of his spirit. Um, and every time I failed as a parent, I just started running to him in, in tears. That, that's what crying out means to me. I just ran, and I, I, just, I just cried. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have words. I just, I just cried with him. Um, I was so terrified I was going to mess these little kids up forever. Um, I, was, I was mostly afraid because I knew um, that as I listened in my prayers that to totally embrace I needed to totally embrace my full relationship with him, and I would have to give up control of my kids. And for me, that was a really a grieving process to hand over my perception of control. Um, what if God wanted my kids to develop an incurable disease, to be kidnapped, to be abused, to die? And as I was crying out and, and thinking through this whole process, I would scream, no, no, I'm not giving up. Somehow in my twisted mama bear logic, by keeping God at arm's length, I felt like I was protecting my kids. But you know what I was doing, I found out, and the Lord convicted me of, was I was teaching my kids how to be fearful rather than faithful. I was teaching them disobedience. I was teaching them how to hold on rather than how to let go. So very slowly, I chose faithful obedience. I had to think of it like this. Um, standing under an umbrella, staring at the sky, terrified of a big storm. That's what I was doing. And what I needed to, and I was trying to keep my kids underneath, right? Keep them from getting wet. Um, but what I needed to do was escort my little ones into his shadow. I needed to enter his protection and to know that whatever we faced while living in his will would be under his supervision and under his direction. And so very, 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 very slowly, it became freeing, not scary. 
It was an incredible release. And as I prayerfully let go and let God become my best friend and CEO in this endeavor, I felt calm. And the most wonderful thing began to happen. Um, the Holy Spirit began to whisper in my ears ways to parent each kid individually. For example, when my daughter Clara was two, she's um, just wonderful, beautiful, thoughtful child. Or <laughs> she was sharp, angry, and volatile. She was hot or cold. And it all depended on the day. There was no in-between. Um, and so one of the things we found with her is she never tattles. We ne she would never come and tell us what was wrong. She just took care of business right there. Um, in 30 seconds or less, she could absolutely shred her siblings or me um, into pieces with her words. And it was coming to a breaking point in our house, and I could tell that if this little girl continued on this path, she was going to be a miserable adult. And everything I tried backfired. So as I was giving her time out one day and silently offering up prayers for guidance, the Holy Spirit just started whispering to me, swords, swords, tell her about swords. I thought, oh, swords, okay. So I started using sword imagery. We sat and um, I told her that when she was talking and using sharp words, she was cutting everyone in her path. Um, and people would start avoiding her if they got hurt every time they were by her. And her eyes got big as saucers. I could see this light bulb went off in her head. And somehow the Holy Spirit had just handed me this key to help unlock her heart and help her understand the bigger picture. I never would have thought of that. That was not in any book I read. That, wasn't, that was the Lord giving me a straight access into her heart. Um, another example, my, my youngest, Abby, has always taken things personally, especially discipline. So if I would give her a timeout, her bottom lip would push out. She would sob and say, why don't you love me? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? You know, you, you, consequences, actions, blah, 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 you know, what's going on? And, and it was destroying our relationship. She was getting further and further away from us, and I was just at an impasse because everything I was doing was driving wedge after wedge after wedge. What was I going to do with this little girl to help her understand and still maintain our relationship together? And so one day on the stairs, you know, she's sobbing. I'm telling her I love her, but consequently, blah, blah, blah. And um, I just said, Lord, you know, she's yours. What do you have? I, I, I'm out of ideas. I got nothing right now. And I heard him say, teams, teams. Tell her about teams. And I just knew that he wanted for this little girl that, um, to know that we were on the same team. And when I used that phrasing with her, all of a sudden, once again, she gets it. I said, we're on a team together. My job is to teach you and to listen to you, and your job is to obey and to listen to me. We always got to be on the team together. When that breaks up, let's get back together. And boom, light bulb goes off. I was like, Lord, you are brilliant. <laughs> I never would have thought of that. How sweet he is to my kids and how sweet he is to their mama. Um, truly, I have been shocked at God's goodness. My conversation with God started as a plea for help, and as I listened to him, he had way more in mind for me than parenting tips. He spoke directly to my heart. He saw what I really needed and what my kids really needed in their mom. How amazing that the maker of the universe can reach down and talk to me. Awesome. Thank you. That's awesome. Swords. Swords. I'm going to take a little different illustration of swords. We have lots of swords at our disposal. We have our best ideas, our resources, our money, our experiences. 
And so when we have problems, we often turn to this and we use that to deal and take bat and, and go to battle. We often go to this first. Okay, there's a problem. How do I deal with it? List the pros and cons. Take a moment. You know, you, know, you come up and you just think through, how can I solve this? I'm going to use my strength. And as, as Rachel was sharing, like, she, she was thinking through all the different things that she could do and come up with her ideas. But it was when she finally turned to God and used his power, cried out to him, and asked for him to come and do something that he started to share things with her. You see, Gideon in the story never actually used the sword, but they kept talking about it. Gideon's sword was that he was leveraging prayer. He was relying on God's power to deal with this huge army that was in front of him. That was his, that, that's where he went. He, he went to this. I heard a story recently of uh, a pastor whose friend was struggling. He had a daughter, she was an adult at this point, and his friend came to this pastor and said, um, uh, I got this daughter. She's making these decisions. It's driving me crazy. And I've done everything I can. I've argued with her. I've used my influence. We've had it out. We've, we've had fights. But she will not change her mind. She will not change her ways. And it's just breaking my heart. What do I do? And the pastor, um, he usually doesn't do this, but he, he said, I, I, I know exactly what you need to do. The first thing is this. When you're with your daughter, put down your sword. Quit trying to control the situation. Quit trying your best ideas, your best arguments. Your number one mission when you're with your daughter is to make sure she knows without a shadow of a doubt that you love her. That you show her in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of messages, in all sorts of words, how much you love your daughter. So that when she goes to be with her friends, and they ask about her parents that she would say, you know what, they don't agree with what I'm doing, but I know that they love me. That's the number one mission. But the second thing is this. When you're away from her, take up your sword and fight for her in prayer. Ask that God would intercede and break the cords and break the chains in her life. Ask that God would redeem her, that his will would be done in her life, that his kingdom would come in the back room, behind the scenes, fight for your daughter. When I heard this story, I, I thought I had this picture of like the people of God of Chapel Hill taking the sword, the sword of the Spirit, our, our leveraging our prayer and walking around our families and walking around our house and walking around our centers of influence and praying over every room and every family member, not trying our best ideas to, to control and do the best thing, but to, to leverage God's power, to leverage prayer so that he would speak to us like he spoke to Rachel, so that he would give Gideon, someone who's pathetic, incredible reliance on his power, and then take down a massive armies. You know, when, with, with Joy, one of the biggest moments was, for me, was when I stopped trying to control as well. I tried to fix it. I tried to make it better. I used all my best ideas and, and power. But I just got more and more exhausted, and she never got, she, she was getting worse. And when I let go, someone said to me, a counselor that I was meeting with said, put down your sword. And take up God's sword. Stop trying to control this thing. You can't fix it. Stop trying to fix joy. And just go to God. Deal with your stuff and then use this sword. Leverage prayer. 
and let God do his thing. Let God use things like bread or horns or ridiculous things. But let him do it, because he can take down massive armies. He can do that. One last thought. One last thought. Prayer has a learning curve. Just like this sword, I don't know how to use a sword. I wouldn't even take lessons or fencing classes or whatever. You know, it would be be ridiculous. I wouldn't know what what to do with this. I would try to wave it. You got to do this, right? I don't know how to use this. Same thing with prayer. Uh, My guess is that many of you in this room, if we were to have a conversation, you'd say, I don't feel like my prayers are very effective. Let that bother you. Let that bother Some of us, we pray, not effective. It seems like it's not effective, so we quit. It's kind of like turning on the TV, nothing happens, so we say, huh, TV must be a myth. There must be no TV. No, the truth is something's not right, something's not wired, something's not connected correctly. Let it bother you. Why aren't your prayers effective? The one thing I will share is this, with, with how to make your prayers more effective. There's numerous things we could talk about. Well, one thing I would share that's on my heart is this. You know, Jesus says, pray for anything in my name, and I'll do it. And we often hold to that. We go, in the name of Jesus, X, Mercedes. You know? Is that what it means? Like, anything you pray for in my name, genie in a bottle, baby. That's who I am. No, no, read the whole passage. Abide in me. Let your word be in me. Then ask for anything in my name. And I'll do it. It's about aligning our heart with God. It's about soaking our life and our brain and our mind in who God is. It's about knowing what God wants. It's about having the heart of God. It's about having God change our desires. I often hear this. There's a psalm that says, God will give you the desires of your heart. How many people have purchased Mercedes because I desire a Mercedes? So he's going to give me that. Right? We use that verse like, God's going to be the desires of my heart, therefore I desire this, so make sure God makes, wants me to have this. No, read the rest of the passage. It says, trust God, be faithful, commit your ways to him, delight in God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Align yourself with God. Align yourself with God. And then when you wield the sword of prayer, it'll be effective. So leverage prayer. Make it your natural reflex. Look for unconventional weapons. Know that he might limit your resources because because he doesn't want you to think, because of my strength, I defeated this enemy. And know this, that, that your prayer plus God's power equals eternal gain. Let's pray. Lord, as Rachel said at the end of her, uh, her part, Lord, that how awesome is it that we can go to the God who created the universe, that we can walk right into the throne room of the one who made the world and the entire universe, and that we can have fellowship with him. How awesome is it that when we come up, armies as far as we can see, with soldiers too numerous to count, that you wait for us to cry out to you and then by your strength you deliver us. Lord, it's my prayer that as a church that Chapel Hill becomes one that has a reflex 
of going to prayer first. That when we come across any problem, whether big or small, that our natural reflex is to go right to the God of the universe. Not our own plans or power or strength. Not trying to control it, but to go to you. Lord, help us to pray more effective prayers. Show us this week, Lord, I pray, why our prayers aren't as effective as they should be. Lord, show us. Put your finger on things that we need to work on. Help us to carry the sword, the sword of the Spirit, leveraged by prayer. Lord, we love you, and uh, we commit this day and the rest of this week to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.